9, 5. 2 Timothy 1, verses 1 to 8. Okay, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I continually remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you, so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we ask that your word will be our rule, that your Holy Spirit, our teacher, and that your glory will be our supreme concern. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Well, the Packers are coming tomorrow. The lorry uh, is on its way on Tuesday. Uh, we've got a one-way ticket to St. Albans. So, I'm free. <laughs> I can say whatever I like. <laughs> yes? Been waiting for this moment. <laughs> a farewell talk. What do you say on such an occasion? Well, let me ask you, what's, what's your advice? I wonder what would you say if you were in my shoes? Uh, what would you say to this church? You've got one talk. Well, actually, I've got two. I've got one tonight as well. Uh, one talk to say, you know, your most important words. What does this church most need to hear? let's say, in 20 minutes or so. A word of thanks, perhaps, for all the good things God has been doing amongst us. A word of encouragement, well done, for the committed ministry, keep at it. Uh, a word of rebuke, even. There are things that aren't so great, perhaps. Well, what would you say? What do you think I should say? Well, I need to apologise you aren't going to get all of my personal opinions and impressions, but that should be a relief. You don't really want my fallible viewpoints. Rather, we're going to turn to God's infallible source and to the Apostle Paul's farewell, his final letter to the church leader, Timothy. If you know this letter, you'll know that it's a bit different from many of the others that he wrote. It's a very personal uh, letter. Just for example, you can see down in verse 2, he calls Timothy his dear son. Beloved child, actually, would be an even more literal way of putting it. And he's not shy to share his warm feelings 
for Timothy. But it's not just personal, it's also public. It was written to be read out in church as well. Timothy is the leader of a church, the leader of the next generation after Paul, and in fact, Paul's closest protege. And Paul wants the church to hear these words as well. So if you like, these are Paul's famous last words for the church after he uh, and also the other apostles have gone. And they're troubling times that Timothy is in. There's persecution from outside the church. Paul is in prison. He's awaiting a trial and he's convinced that his death is coming. And inside the church, many are turning away from the teaching of Jesus and from the apostles and abandoning Paul. It's not too different from what the church faces today, isn't it? Is it? You know, all around the world, Christians are persecuted. Even by the, the most non-Christian sources, Christians are recognised as the most persecuted group. It's not so bad for us in England, but the mood is increasingly against us. And as you know, there are many within the church who are turning away from the clear teaching of the Bible and the apostles. So Paul's words to Timothy back then are very relevant for us today. What are then his famous last words to his young leader? Well, I've summed up verses 1 to 8 with two points. Paul says, I thank God for your real faith. And second, so I remind you to live it out bravely. I thank God for your real faith. So I remind you to live it out bravely. So look at 1 to 5. I thank God for your real faith. I'll read from verse 3. He says, I thank God whom I serve, as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you, so that I may be filled with joy. I've been reminded of your sincere faith. It's first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. So how does Paul know that Timothy's faith is real? Well first he does this surprising thing of showing Timothy that his faith is the same faith uh, as all of God's people from the past. He reminds him in these hard times that he is connected to all of God's people uh, from all time. So Paul speaks of his forefathers, that's the true uh, believing Israelites from the past, like Abraham and Moses and David. True Christian believers share the same faith uh, as those believers in Israel of old. And then he reminds Timothy of his relatives. Timothy's father was a Greek, uh, his mother was Jewish, uh, and in fact was a believer uh, along with uh, his grandmother, Lois, real believers in Jesus as well. And then he spends time talking about himself as a real servant of God, and he shows how deeply attached he is to Timothy, his unceasing prayers, his longing to see him, that he may be filled with joy. Timothy's faith and work, you see, are very much the same faith and work that Paul has been doing. So Timothy's faith is real, because it's the same faith as all of these faithful believers from the past. And when Paul looks at him in his life, he is persuaded that Timothy is sincere. He's the real thing. The word sincere in the original could be translated without hypocrisy. 
There's no play acting. Timothy doesn't wear a mask. What you see on the outside is what you get on the inside. He is sincere in his trust in Jesus and in a man of integrity through and through. In a world where there are sadly many religious leaders who are playing to the gallery, Timothy stands out as real. I wonder if the main reason, uh, speaking of politics for a moment, many people seem to be attracted to Jeremy Corbyn, is that in a world full of politicians who seem like actors, here's this bloke who appears to be on the outside just what he is in reality. Well, I don't know, but that's the impression he gives. Timothy's faith is real, like the Israelites, like his mum and grandma, like Paul. He's truly one of God's family. Now the question is, why does Paul start a letter like this? Well, in the hard times that Timothy is facing, the uncertain future as Paul is on death row, as many are turning away from the truth, isn't it to give Timothy a big dose of reassurance? You really are in God's eternal family, Timothy. You really are on the right track. I have to confess I was a bit nervous about last night, uh, but it was also reassuring. People said kind things uh, and reassured Cherry and me uh, that we can go forward uh, confident for the next uh, stage. But also, it's a real joy for me to be able to stand before you today and thank God for your sincere faith here in this church family. From the top down, I am persuaded there is a sincerity, a reality about your faith here. I can think of lots of examples, but last night, uh, actually one of the, the young lads, he's not here uh, today, reminded me of the time uh, when I was going into the Christian Union at one of the local sixth form colleges. It was not an easy time, and I can remember the way this young man was just living for Jesus in a sincere uh, an open and honest way before his friends and before the college authorities is such an encouragement. Or I just think of the staff team. In many ways, it's been straightforward, you know, working here uh, with the guys because people are honest and straight. Uh, you know where you stand. There's a sincere faith and everyone is pulling together. And so Cherry and I thank you all very much for your sincere faith and we thank God for what he has done because it's his work in your lives. But also, I need to speak to here, speak here this morning to anyone today who's not yet come to faith. Is that possible? Having faith in Jesus, according to Paul, is the best gift you can ever receive. Just look at verse 1 again. He writes about the gospel. He says, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, in the face of all these troubling times and the things that we can go through, Christ Jesus gives life. Having a real faith in him is a very great blessing for life. For this life, it means peace with God. It means whatever we may be going through, whatever trials, whatever ups and downs, there's this amazing anchor at the centre holding us firm. But more than that, the life in Christ Jesus refers to eternal everlasting life. Look down at verse 10. It says that Jesus has destroyed death and brought life 
and immortality to light through the gospel, through his death for us, for our sins, he can give us eternal life. And so if you've not yet put your trust in him, really, can I, can I urge you today, uh, as my final word, if you like, to say, go for it, take that step and sincerely trust in Jesus, that you also may be sure of this life that lasts forever. And even if we don't meet again in person, we will meet again in glory. So, I thank God for your real faith, the faith you share with all true believers through all time. Paul writes this so that we may have a great reassurance, but also he leads on to a great challenge. I thank God for your real faith. So the second point, I remind you to live it out bravely. For this reason, verse 6, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Because Timothy has real faith, because he's really one of God's family, Paul says, live it out. God has called us to live out who we really are as new people in Christ. And so for this, this means for Timothy, two things I think we see in these last few verses. He, he says, firstly, use your God-given gift, and he's going to say, go public willing to suffer. So use your God-given gift. The gift of God, here the word could be translated a grace gift, actually a free gift. Uh, it's the same thing that he's speaking of that's elsewhere in the Bible, sometimes called a spiritual gift. God, you see, gives to all true believers in him gifts that he intends us to use to serve others and to build up the church. And we're not actually told what Timothy's gift is, but it was given at his ordination when Paul laid hands on him, and it seems pretty clear that it's to do with teaching the word and leading God's people. But Paul is saying an interesting thing about this gift. He's saying you've received it, but God is commanding you to do something uh, with it. And he, and he uses this illustration of the fire. He says if the gift is like a fire, fan it into flame. Get the bellows out. Get to work uh, on that gift and let it reach its full uh, potential Work at it. Study hard to grow in your teaching and leadership. God's purpose for the gifts that he gives us is for us to use them and to excel in them for the benefit of others. Now, what's the motivation that Paul gives uh, for Timothy to do this? Look at verse 7. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Through faith, we are put right with God. We're his friends. And through faith, God also gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit, now living in us, making us into these new people that we are. Now, the word spirit here in verse 7, it's not 100% clear whether it's talking about the Holy Spirit uh, or about our inner spirits. I think it's probably the latter. But it is clear that it is the work of the Holy Spirit who gives us this new spirit in our inner selves. He can fill us with power, love, and self-control so that we use our gifts in the service of others. Our sincere faith is meant to lead us to have changed lives. So Paul would say to all of us here, fan into flame the gift of God that he has given to you in a spirit of power, 
love and self-control. Just look around uh, at uh, everyone here today and think about this church family. Isn't it built up by the fact that people use their gifts to serve one another? We're, we're full, aren't we? We have all kinds of different types of people, all shapes and sizes, all different kinds of gifts and temperaments. And God uses all of these abilities to build uh, his church and to enable us to reach out to others. As an example, I can think of no better thing than the recent holiday clubs this summer. You know, there's all different kinds of people get involved. The techies sort out the sound and the lights and the videos and the website. The arts and crafty people sort out the set and the costumes and the drama sketches. The sporty types do the outdoor games. Others do the Bible teaching games. Many use their gifts of teaching and preaching. And these clubs work because every year gifts are fanned into flame. And it's a model, isn't it, of how the rest of church life operates and should uh, operate. Think of Jesus' parable of the talents for a moment. God's will is for us to invest our talents so that they bear fruit and grow the kingdom. And he's not pleased, is he, with that wicked servant who receives the gift but buries it in the ground and does nothing uh, about it. And he wants us to use our gifts to build up the church. So, let Paul's words challenge you. Are you getting older? Don't go into cruise control and think maybe I'll put my feet up a bit more and let other people do stuff. Or are you a parent? Well, please don't use your children as an excuse not to use your gifts. Are you a young person? Well, please don't use the fear of exams and career as excuses not to use your gift. Everyone, all of us, as we have opportunity, keep fanning them into flame. For God hasn't given us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. So let us use our God-given gifts. But Paul also says to Timothy, go public, willing to suffer. Verse 8. Perhaps the key verse of chapter 1. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Timothy has a particular responsibility as a leader of God's people to publicly declare the gospel and to put his body on the line in public. His gift is tied particularly to this public ministry. But it's not just ordained people who are called to open living and speaking about Jesus all of us. But there's always this temptation to be ashamed about what we believe. And if you're anything like me, you will have felt it. But why is it that we sometimes feel ashamed about the thing that is most precious and most wonderful uh, to us? Well, maybe it's sometimes because others may ridicule what we believe, or maybe sometimes when you compare it with other philosophies in the world it just kind of seems a bit basic and weak but look at how Paul uh, puts it he says look at verse 8 think about it he says we've got a choice there's two options we can be ashamed of Jesus stay quiet and avoid suffering or we can go public testify about Jesus and so join Paul in suffering for the gospel going public, 
opens us up to suffering. And yet Paul still urges us to do it. Listen to um, Rico Tice, uh, an evangelist. This brilliant new book of his, it's called Honest Evangelism. I warmly recommend it. He writes this. So if you're going to talk to people about Jesus, you're going to get hurt. It's going to sever some relationships. It's going to provoke people. Not every time. And depending on our circumstances, friendship groups, workplaces and so on, our experiences will vary. But we will face rejection enough of the time to give us second thoughts. Because I don't know about you, but I don't particularly like getting hurt. We're wired to assume that if we're getting hit, something's gone wrong. And so whenever I tell someone the gospel message and get hit, metaphorically speaking, there's a temptation either to stop saying anything or to change what I'm saying. I know there's a pain line that needs to be crossed if I tell someone the gospel, but I want to stay the comfortable side of the pain line. Of course I do. And he says, I think that's the main reason why we don't do evangelism. And yet... I know there's many encouraging examples that I've seen of people stepping over the pain line here in my time. Think again of that um, Christian union at the Sixth Form College that was undergoing a hard time in my first year here. They were very brave. They organised a Gorilla Christian event. Uh, they booked out a theatre in the college. They did loads and loads of publicity. But this annoyed the Atheist Society uh, and the Gay Straight Alliance, and so as well as interested people, a whole bunch of people turned up to cause trouble. I was on the panel. Uh, it was not a nice experience. Some people stormed out in rage. Later on, some people tried to get the college authorities to ban the Christian Union from ever holding such events, and the CU's wings were clipped a little bit as a result. But the young men and women uh, in the Christian Union, young people, many from this church, kept their heads and humbly and bravely and sincerely continued to witness as best they could. What, a, what an example uh, to all of us. Or I think of the privilege, the great privilege of doing the Christianity Explored course on Monday nights, one of the highlights of my time here. And as we've done that course and discussed and chatted with people who are exploring the Christian faith, it's both really exciting as people start to sort of warm to it and, you know, experience and speak of the joy that they're starting to find uh, in Jesus. And yet at the same time, a number of people have described how they've gone and talked to their friends or colleagues or family members and started to share these wonderful new things and received, in response, a completely negative uh, reaction. Even some of them before they'd actually decided uh, to follow uh, Jesus or not. That's the reality that we face, and I know of many other examples. So, how do we cross the pain line, as Rico Tice puts it? How do we keep doing what is humanly unnatural? Well, Paul tells us at the end of the day, there's only one thing that will enable us to do it, and that's the power of God. But it's interesting, isn't it? Just look again at the way Paul words it. He calls Timothy to make a conscious decision. He says, Timothy, you've got to decide to join with me in suffering for the gospel. In the same way, he's got to make a conscious decision to fan into flame 
his gift. But in both cases, as Timothy exerts his will to do the hard thing, what does he find? He finds the power of God, the Holy Spirit, assisting him every step of the way. The wind of the Spirit filling his sails. That is God's promise to us. Yes, it will be hard for us when we go public. But God has promised his power to be with us. And though Rico Tice describes some really hard things that happened to him uh, over the years, he also describes amazing joy, the best joy, the most amazing privilege of sharing the gospel with people and seeing them respond in faith. Sometimes we um, read passages like this and we think, oh, the Apostle Paul, he's a clever scholar, but what does he know about real life? What does he know about the things that I face on Monday mornings uh, each week? But did you realise Paul is not sitting in an ivory tower? Uh, He's sitting in a dungeon uh, as he writes this. He's in there because of his public testimony. He's cold, he tells Timothy. His former friends have deserted him. And he's facing death. And yet, he says it's all worth it. It's all been worth it. God's power has been at work. God's power is still at work, even in that prison cell. In chapter 4, he writes these words. At my first defence, presumably his trial, no one came to support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So Paul would say to all of us here, even as he suffers, do not be ashamed of the gospel, but join with me in suffering for it by the power of God. So, so Mary's Church, can I finish this morning by adding my urge to you to keep on going, living out your faith bravely in public. If any of you have kind of given up a bit of late, well, hear Paul's words of reassurance and challenge. And if you are going for it and it's hard, well, keep at it. It is totally worth it. If your faith is real, Paul says, then live it out bravely. And as we do it, God's power will be at work and wonderful things will continue to happen and his kingdom will grow here in Basingstoke. And as Cherry uh, and I move off, we await to hear uh, of good news of what God is doing amongst you. And please, as we say this to you, please, please pray the same for us as we move to a new place that we will live out our faith boldly in Frogmore and St Albans. We certainly need God's power. Please pray for us. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Thank you for eternal life. Thank you that whatever happens in this life, if we have sincere faith in Jesus... All will be well. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for all you've done in the lives of everyone here in this church family. Thank you for your gift of faith and your gift of your spirit. 
And Father, I pray that you will be with St Mary's and with Holy Trinity and that through the lives and proclamation of these churches, you will continue to build your church. And even as we suffer, would it all be for your glory. In the words of Jude, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.